Good evening, Mr. Smelly. How are you? Did you have a good Valentine's Day? Yeah, I did get my sweet memo, a single rose, a card, and a uh, chocolate-covered brownie. You know, I felt an absence this year, and I was just listening to the latest episode of Chubbs Gone Wild, and Tom was talking about the absence of the conversation hearts. Now, some of you may not know, but the company that made those for ages, the Neko Candy Company, which I think is New England Candy Company, well, they went out of business. There's another company that's going to be making next year, but I guess according to Tom or something he read, they're trying to figure out what the new hearts should say. So I guess maybe a poll would say something like restraining order or watch your mouth. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they could say a lot. Yeah, so we are gathered here tonight for a program about uh, the love of film and television trivia, and we have a special guest that we'll get to in just a moment here. We have our resident showgirl that's just getting up there, and we're getting our cue cards ready for that nice lady. I can't see a damn thing. Put your uh, glasses on. Oh, yeah. In honor of tonight's guest, here's some themes that might trigger you. <laughs> you get it? This movie has hard-nosed bosses and starving artists, effeminate stereotypes, and public indecency. Tonight, we're talking about the 1987 film starring Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall, and everyone's favorite golden girl. Estelle Getty. It's Mannequin! What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of the golden oldies. And a smidgen of streaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host DJ and Toppy. We're here tonight in the beautiful historical marionette theater. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to warm up a bit because it is cold outside there. But do you know what's special about tonight? Well, I know we have a special visitor to Mud uh, Spuds Flats, New York. We sure do. And you know what? I think I see a rather stylish car pulling up the drive here. Tonight's guest has admitted to this film is one of his guilty pleasures. If you will, please gather a round of applause for Mr. Matt Burlingame of Chubb's Gone Wild. Oh, hello. Welcome. I'm, I'm feeling guilty just here being here talking about it. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> well in this day and age we all feel guilty about everything anyway sorry go ahead oh that's quite all right if you'll grab your seat there matt uh do be a little careful these are some old uh theater seats and uh well it gertie will grab you a cushion there make it um, a nicer stay oh sure i'll go get one whatever as long as i don't have to sit in the booth because this is not a booth body girl <laughs> So, uh, as we begin our show, uh, just a short disclaimer here, this matinee minutia is not your ordinary movie or TV podcast, no siree, we do not just sit here and talk about our love of the show, no, we get down to the nitty gritty, the brass tacks, if you will, 
We tell you what went on behind the scenes. And we start that off by setting you in the mindset of that day. This film was released in 1987. So we're going to give you a perspective on the world in 1987 in 60 seconds or so. So in 1987, American Motors Corporation, who uh, manufactured the Gremlin and Hornet cars, you might remember it from Wayne's World, the little blue car they drove that was hatchback. Mm-hmm. It was, they were acquired by Chrysler in that year. In 1987, Jim Baker, a televangelist, also resigned from the PTL. During a visit to Berlin, Ronald Reagan challenged Gorbachev to tear down this wall. And televangelist Pat Robertson announces his candidacy for Republican presidential nomination, as well as the first national coming out day is celebrated. How ironic. And then lastly, a squirrel closes down the NASDAQ stock exchange when it burrows through a telephone line. Squirrel. Squirrel. And uh, just to end on another note here, we, we are all not standing still on this earth and time still passes. So in 1987, to give you a hint of where we are, the folks that join this world who may or may not be in the headlines are the female rapper Kesha. She was born in 87. Blake Lively, who was an actress currently. Hilary Duff, who's also been on the Disney Channel, is an actress, singer, and songwriter. And then uh, Mr. Uh, Six-Pack Abs, Zac Efron, who's born in 87. We also have member of the Jonas Brothers, or at least formerly Kevin Jonas. And then lastly, we have the singer Aaron Carter. So these are all folks that joined the world as it was spinning in 1987. Excellent. And um, just a super fast recap of this movie, uh, what it's about. It's about a young artist. He's searching for his vocation. He makes a mannequin so perfect he falls in love with it. And at, uh, through some strange twist of fate, the mannequin comes to life. And then hijinks and hilarity ensue. And uh, like a lot of popular films, Mannequin is actually sort of a tongue-in-cheek remake, if you will. Now, technically, and I, I'm sure that our guest could probably shed some light on this, but anytime you pay homage, you, you uh, write something in tribute, you're technically supposed to say this is based on now um if a movie is not made by the same studio then they they kind of have to get the rights and that's somewhat difficult a lot of times so uh mannequin was actually sort of loosely based on a earlier film which i believe was made in the 40s called one touch of venus and it had uh, ava gardner in it uh interesting film but uh as we go back to 1987 this film was one of a dozen or so it was made by a company called gladden entertainment now gladden had a cast of actors on the role just like a you know a studio back in the day and of course that included the talents of mr andrew mccarthy who more recently was famous for being in some of the Brat Pack movies, including Pretty in Pink, where he starred opposite Molly Ringwald, and he was he was sort of the the uh, kid from the the comfortable side of the tracks. His folks they had money, and so uh, 
Molly Ringwald was a little ashamed to be hanging out with him because, well, her dad was a janitor. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, I um, will tell the audience that I just saw this for the first time yesterday. I did not see it in the theaters. I sort of remembered the TV promotions for uh, the trailers. Um, Matt, uh, how did you come across this movie? <clears throat> well, I remember when it was out, but I watched it on VHS uh, during the illustrious time when you could go to an independent video store and rent a VCR. Ooh. Yeah. So we would go every weekend and we would rent a VCR and then uh, rent to different movies. And that was one of the movies we rented. Would that have been a top-loading VCR? Yes. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I forgot about those. Yeah. I, I, I remember having VCRs. I mean, I, I'm not saying <laughs> that as a claim to fame, but when I was in school, we didn't yet even have VCRs in the individual classrooms. You actually got sent to the media center with a tape by your teacher, and they played it there, and then the classroom had to tune their TV onto a certain channel and that thing was freaking huge it was like a super <laughs> trunk and it was on a cart and it was up so high so that everyone in the classroom could see it yeah and back then vcrs weighed uh, a shit ton uh, i mean oh yeah a lot of, a lot of uh, pounds jj <laughs> how did you come across this movie oh goodness well this was a magical time of course as a lot of my my childhood kind of was. Um, I think that I was just about to move back to my original hometown. We we actually moved for a time to be near to mom's work at the hospital. And after a couple of years, mom and dad decided they didn't like the neighborhood. So we actually moved back to the same town. <laughs> but anyways, um, Mannequin came out when I wasn't yet in my teens. And um, a young little questioning DJ was uh, just looking for everything that inspired awe and wonder. And suddenly he sees the brilliant colors of the 80s and the fabulous outfits that Hollywood wore. And I couldn't help it. After seeing this movie, I was personally moved. And for a time, I was decorating my parents' front room window for the holidays. Um, How cute. How cute. Yeah, my dad actually hated it because I would put little snowflakes on the window and, you know, in New York we get snow. So, uh, come the spring, he had to use a straight razor to scrape the tape off of it. (laughs) 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 Now, mannequin was the seventh acting role for Andrew McCarthy. And, uh, just before pretty in pink and mannequin, he started quite an interesting film called the Benekin gang. I do believe and uh, I, I've got to crack out a copy of that. I only remember watching it once, but basically he's an older brother type and uh, his parents may have died in a car accident. And, uh, he ends up raising his siblings in abandoned house. It's a very one of a kind film, but, uh, Let's see. Aside from the 80s films that uh, Andrew McCarthy was in, he later on went on to be a contributing travel writer for National Geographic. So he uh, he visited places like Ireland and the Middle East, and he wrote about it. He got featured in National Geographic. 
And, uh, oh, Ethiopia was the other country. And then in more re- recent years, Andrew McCarthy has been a director. Now, I'll bet you, you had no idea what he might have made after all those 80s films. I'll give you a hint. It's on Netflix, and it stars the lady who played Captain Jane Way, Kate Mulgrew. Can you get a hint or take a guess on that? Game of Thrones. Oh, I'll, I'll give you a bigger hint. It involves women in incarceration. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, na- the name is related to fashion. They always say something. One day at a time. <laughs> okay. Womp womp. Orange is the new black. Oh. So uh, Mr. McCarthy there is no longer in front of the camera as often. He's now behind it and he's turning out things like uh, Orange is the New Black, which I'm sure has received its fair share of award nominations, if not winnings of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There. Let me ask you guys. So did you think when you saw this movie, was Andrew kind of cute? You know, when I when I saw it, I mean, I was like 17 so I thought he was like really adorable, but when I was rewatching it this week, I'm like, oh, he's just a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, perspective changes with with uh, age. So yeah, yeah. You know, I I I was quite a bit. Well, not quite a bit. I was a few years younger when I saw it, so I was still trying to figure things out for myself. But I'm sure that I probably thought he was cute. Um. You know, he he. I think that he was meant to sort of depict the average guy, because certainly that's part of the storyline too. I mean, did any of you count the amount of jobs that Jonathan Switcher held until he got the landed the part in the department store? I didn't count them, but I'm going to guess like five. Around about that, they they alluded to that there probably were more. I mean, they uh-huh. there was a part, uh, you know, a point in the movie where he goes out for lunch with his estranged girlfriend and it turns out that the restaurant they're at was one of his old jobs too that he set on fire (laughs) yes (laughs) twice yeah um so uh so folks he he is uh, thinks of himself as an artist and he actually uses the word sculptor and so that's part of the reason why he's perhaps a little more interest in this job he's got at a mannequin factory because somehow he, he, he apparently, I don't know what he did, but he created the mannequin. Now to me, mannequins are sort of made in molds and I don't exactly know how he created it, but he seemed sort of putting the arms on. And other than that, I'm not sure how he feels like he created something. I think, I think it was because he he like stylized the face and stuff. Okay, like with makeup and and the wig and stuff. Well, and and I think that he sculpted the mold that made it or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't apparent, but he uh, certainly thinks of himself as an artist, and he certainly feels like this mannequin is like like the most artistic expression of his skills that he's had. To this date, and you know, with each scene that they they uh, portray a different job, and this is all done in the first few minutes of the film, just to kind of help you get the idea that this poor guy is struggling with getting through his day to day life, 
and maybe he feels like he can't do any right because no matter where he lands, he's not free to express himself. He's just supposed to be part of the the daily grind. Well, even as brief as the scenes that they have are, uh, they they've got some pretty good lines in there. Especially as you were saying in the mannequin factory, he's really getting into his work. They've even got some music going. I think it's the Temptations, and they're singing "My Girl." And um, his boss comes up to him and he's like three or four of these, you know, uh, what I think he says, you're supposed to turn out three or four of these a day. And he's like, you know, a week. <laughs> yeah. He's taking the lead salt of the problem he gets into in the pizza company when he takes too long to make a pizza. And when he's in the landscape company, he's like trying to sculpt this stupid bush into a rabbit i think uh, and so everyone says uh, yeah you're weird and you're fired and i can't be for sure but the actor who's listed as credited uh as the boss in the gardening job has the same last name so i'm wondering if like bill murray andrew mccarthy might have thrown a family member a bone <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know I do. but we also have his co-star who is the lovely Kim Cattrall. Now, just before Mannequin, she was in a pretty uh, impactful film in, in terms of pop culture. You know, we still talk about this movie today. She was in uh, Big Trouble in Little China with Kurt Russell. And so uh, she went on from that role to this role. And uh, it's, it's interesting to note because... Uh, she really got into the role. There, there's uh, evidence out there, or information, that she talks about. She got into shape specifically for this film because she knew she was going to do a fair amount of modeling. In fact, they stylized the mannequin bust and form from her her body, so she wanted to make sure she was in shape for the camera. Yeah, <clears throat> I've got some uh, quotes from her about recalling this movie. And she says, quote, there's no way to play a mannequin, except if you want to sit there as a dummy. I did a lot of bodybuilding because I wanted to be as streamlined as possible. I wanted to match the mannequins as closely as I could. And uh, then she said later that doing the film made her feel grown up. And she says, uh, I've become more of a leading lady instead of like a girl, uh, the girl. All the other movies that I've done, I played the girl and the plot was around a, the guy. I've never had anything to do special. Uh, I've never had anybody to do special lighting for me or find out what clothes looked good on me or what camera angles are best for me. And in this movie, Mannequin, I learned a lot from it. It's almost like learning old Hollywood techniques. I've always been sort of a tomboy. I feel great being a girl wearing a dress, so I guess she was pretty enthused about it. And she's very young, isn't she, in this movie? I don't know how old, but she's very young. Oh, goodness. You know, it, it's harder to tell when you pair certain uh, actors together if there's an age difference. But I think that there might be something like six or seven years, not a, not a terrible amount of years between her and Andrew McCarthy. But she is the older of the two. But they are both very young in this. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. Uh, she was never on my radar until Sex in the City. What about you, man? Uh, same thing. In fact, when I was reading her movies, I'm like, oh, that was her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But now, going back and watching them, I love that it's her. Yeah. 
She's uh, very appealing in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I fault some of the writing for, well, her motivations. So the they they try to explain this mannequin coming alive by uh, building this whole conceit around an, uh, an Egyptian woman who didn't want to get married and she wanted to do all these things. But way back then, 2000 years BC, women weren't allowed to do too much. And she sort of prays to God, although the Egyptians had many gods. Mm -hmm. uh, So they didn't say what God she prayed to, but uh, she wanted to get away, get away from it all. And uh, poof, she disappears, travels through time. And uh, somehow, we don't really, it's not ever really explained, but she sort of becomes embodied in this mannequin. Um, now, I'm just going to say, she had all these things she wanted to do. That's what she said. I want to build things. I want to create things. I want to blah, blah, blah. But in the movie, uh, she really loves the clothes and she loves it when the jewelry is put on her. But I don't really see her thinking too much about what she can create or do all these great things. So I think they missed the boat there. But what do you guys think? I think that um, she was creating because she was doing a lot of this stuff for the windows. Um, it was more her than him with the inspiration for that. And also um, she talked about when she had gone through different points in history, stopping and, and doing interesting things and trying to invent something that flies and then finding the, what was it? The, the hang glider and hang gliding through the mall, which was, that was a fun scene. Um, so, I mean, I think that, I think that I, I agree with you a, a little bit, but the main thing that I liked was that they didn't make her and keep in mind, this was 1987. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, that they made her want to be more she didn't want to be pigeonholed into doing, you know, taking on the traditional women role. She wanted more out of her life. And so for that time period, especially not, you know, just finding a man, which ultimately became the the point of the movie that she found love. Um, But I think that she did want more, but I agree with you too. They could have done that better. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, they, they had few opportunities to define her character because there was the spectacle of the department store. They wanted to depict it as being this, this hulking old, you know, old style place that was in danger of closing its doors. They were supposed to rescue it. And uh, that kind of overshadowed the, the glamor of, you know, uh, this everyday guy who was working with a beautiful woman. And, uh, you know, she, turns out that she could come to life when they're alone together. But there, there was one defining scene that sort of set up her, um, her ambitions and it was when they were in the stock room it was kind of the workshop area she's straddling the sawhorse and she finds the power tools mm-hmm. and you know you get if you've watched any home improvement type programs or home design shows in the last few years you see the these the okay stereotypical maybe but maybe that's the wrong word the the homemaker 
who gets excited because they've been handed power tools and now they have the the ability to invent things so she picks up the the uh i guess it's an impact gun or something you know and shoots off a couple of nails and she's talking to andrew mccarthy's character jonathan and he's like um i'm open for discussion because the nails like messed him by a hair (laughs) (laughs) yeah and just uh just a brief uh, little bit of trivia about where they filmed this. It was filmed in Philadelphia. And uh, for the interior of, of the store, um, it looks like they used uh, a, a very old classic department store in Philadelphia called Boscov's. Boscov's. Um, and well, it's still there, apparently. Um, right. Now, that, under a different that- name. Not to dispute you, but you're you are right. They used two different stores, of course, because they they depicted two different stores. The uh the Boskov store was actually the more modern one, and that was the one that was used for Illustra. And the store that was used for Prince and Company was actually in Philadelphia, and it was a place called at the time Wanamakers, which is one of the many uh stores that has fallen under the umbrella of Macy's. So uh, I do believe it's still open today, but it's a Macy's. Yeah. Um, it was a beautiful interior. So what about the chasing at the end when they're running through the store? Was that Boscov's? Boscov's? Oh, yeah. The store where they, they uh, were going into the back room to... Uh, where where they know. were knocking over all the display <laughs> things and stuff. Right. Yeah, because uh, they had all that neon and all that tinsel that was supposed to look modern and eighties. So that was the Boscov store. Okay. All right. Which which is interesting because that's actually a chain from the northeast <laughs> that we that we have not far from the likes of of uh, Toppy and I. And uh I haven't yet been in one, but they're supposedly really nice and they're one of very few store chains left mm-hmm. that are actually family run. So the the company that or the the folks that founded the company are allegedly still in charge. Yeah. So the producers you know, w- needed to find a place to do this. They they weren't going to construct an interior set. They needed to film on location, so they uh, they went to various states and film commissions across America to, to find these things. But it struck me, and of course, they didn't have the budget because this was, I believe, uh, not a really expensive movie to make, but. It it should have taken place in New York City. Mm. It would have been yeah, so and weird. Better. And we are at about halfway through. So, folks, this is the time where we uh, let you know that it's intermission. So you can get up from your seats, maybe grab a beverage, visit the little half moon house, and we will be back in well with you shortly. Okay, and we are back. Gentlemen, are you there? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that was the big opening sequence of the film. It was animated, and it uh, depicted her travels through time before she arrived at the modern-day department store, Prince and Company. So 
Um, before we continue on, picking up with the cast, aside from Andrew McCarthy and the uh, fabulous and beautiful Kim Cattrall, we also have a couple of newcomers to the scene who are just to be cast in iconic television roles. So we have Estelle Getty, and not sure many of you knew this, but Estelle was very quiet in the beginnings of her career, and she, in fact, was a friend of Harvey Firestein. Uh, she began her seven-year run on the Golden Girls two years before Mannequin, and uh, she was Emmy-nominated for Best Supporting Actress each year. And, uh, well, unfortunately, only won once, but uh, she took in her 29-year-old nephew who was dying of AIDS in the last year of his life. And something that she was known to have said was people assume that I'm wiser than I am because I'm somewhat successful. Age does not bring you wisdom. Age brings you wrinkles. If you're dumb when you're young, you're going to be dumb when you're old. <laughs> she was quite appealing in the role uh, of the uh, the owner uh, or the daughter of the original owner of the store. What would you think, Matt? Um, I thought she was awesome and I loved her because she can pretty much do no wrong. And I loved hearing that uh, she took in her what nephew, was it? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I did not know that, but that uh, doesn't surprise me a bit. It only makes me absolutely love her more. Um, so, yeah, I can't don't think I can add much more about that. Yeah, she was certainly fabulous in the role. I mean, uh, you know, she kind of typified herself with some of the lines that she had towards the end of the film. And uh, she was letting her her assistant, the kind of the business manager, know that she was a tough cookie and not to stand in her way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she ends up being the one who calls the police towards the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, you know, some 30 years later, <laughs> uh, you know, someone gets jealous that they can't get their estranged boyfriend to work their new job. Uh, Jonathan Switcher's girlfriend, Roxy, is working at the hot new uh, commodity in town, Illustra. She wants him to come to work at her store because her boss is putting the pressure on her. So what could she do? Well, she has all of the girl mannequins abducted from the store because she has a good authority that her boyfriend is weird. Right. So there's a lot of comedy and hijinks because the conceit of the movie is that uh, the only person who sees the mannequin alive is uh, the artist, uh, Andrew. And uh, anytime anyone else sees her, she's a mannequin. So she'll ride on the back of his motorcycle alive. And then someone will pull up and say, hey, what are you doing there with that mannequin on the back of your motorcycle? And she's a mannequin. So <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of that kind of silliness that goes through it. Um, another star in the movie uh, that also... Um, went on to be a, 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 a more of a name in TV was Messock Taylor. And he portrayed someone who was obviously written and intended to be uh, a gay man. And I'm curious as both of you two young gay boys, when you saw this character, uh, did it make, how did you feel about it the first time you saw it? What, 
did you get from his performance, positive or negative? Um, positive. I was 16. I mean, keep in mind that when this happened, it was 1987. It's in the height of the AIDS period where an entire generation is dying and there's no cure on the horizon. Uh, and to see a role model, to see somebody who is, is an openly gay character, feminine or otherwise, granted, there's all the, you know, you can say, yeah, it's stereotypical and it's this and it's that. But for that time period, seeing a gay character that was not only out, but he was also one of the heroes. Um, He was accepting of Jonathan, even though Jonathan was weird. And Jonathan and the lead were accepting of him. Estelle Getty was accepting of him. Uh, There was hugging. There was never, you know, all the, the queers and the... The, whenever they said queer or sissy or fruit or whatever, it was always the bad guys that said it, never any of the good guys. They were always very accepting. And he was also in a relationship, although the guy was cheating on him. So, and even though he was very effeminate and everything, it's like he was part of the fun. He wasn't the butt of the joke. And so I really think, especially for that time, it was a good thing. And I, I loved it. I think he did great in it, and yeah. So, um, DJ, what? How about you? What did? What was your take on him? I mean, I'm talking about like when you first saw it. Like, oh, what certainly were your feelings towards the character. Certainly. Now, of course, it's no secret that a lot of these uh, '80s films are something that I caught on uh, cable. You know, when uh, Dad would have HBO during the winter months, because that's the only time we were allowed to have a movie channel, was when Dad couldn't <laughs> be working outside. But uh, yeah, I remember watching Mannequin probably on HBO, and I wasn't yet a teenager yet. But you know, as they say, I knew early on. And seeing Mannequin and the diversity that was portrayed in this, it helped me out a lot because yes, Jonathan was a typical you know red-blooded American boy, but he was artistic. And then you have Meshach Taylor's character Hollywood who is even more over the top. So I felt that betwixt the two of them, I I felt normal compared to them, you know? <laughs> and I just thought to myself, uh, you know, life could be okay because these guys, they're grownups and they get to have this great adventure. I mean, sure, I might have to, you know, find my way out of the haystack and live in the city, but if I could find my way to a department store, I might be able to do fun things with clothes and dolls. And let's face it, a lot of us, when we were little boys, we played with dolls. And I'm not just calling action figures dolls. No, I played with my sister's dolls. And when they made doll houses in home at class, they would bring them home. And, well, their little brother, me, would take them apart because I would remodel their, their doll houses. <laughs> And my dad was a building contractor, so I had access to carpet samples and wallpaper samples, so I would do those up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I did not see it back then. I cannot cannot give you an impression, but what did strike me uh, is a bit ahead of its time was a very brief scene where Jonathan is confronting 
the mall guard uh and the guard asks who he is and, and jonathan says well i'm assisting the window dresser hollywood and immediately the guard gets all kind of femi and like oh really mm-hmm. those and jonathan ends the discussion by saying well i'm just glad i'm working with him and not some bigoted dickwad right and, and right. walks away now back then I think that's a little ahead of its time using the word bigot to describe someone who, you know, has some sort of problem uh, with with uh, homosexuals. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a little mm-hmm. bit ahead of its time. Well, and I maybe get a little ahead of myself because, I mean, we, we don't really talk about the whole film and its, you know, progression from beginning to end. But if you've seen it, this is what we're talking about is what made it to making it. And of course, towards the end of the film, Hollywood has to come to the rescue because Jonathan is trying to track down his favorite mannequin, the one that comes to life with him, Emmy. And so uh, Hollywood is trying to do his best to uh, dash into the fray. And Matt, do you, do you remember the scene towards the end of the movie where, where Hollywood gets his just desserts? The, when he has the hose. Yes. <laughs> yes. I absolutely love that. And the, his dialogue during the whole thing, too. Yeah. Because if you think about it, just as Toppy was just saying, how the, uh, you know, the, the phrasing and the mindset that Andrew McCarthy's character, Jonathan, had by addressing the security guard's attitude, you know, it, it was in that way. There's, there's symbolism in this movie. And, mm-hmm. and do you do you get what I mean about the fire hose there, Matt? Yes, yes, I completely do. And I thought about it when I was watching the movie too. Right. So <laughs> it, you know, it it should be mentioned because uh, if anyone's going to be guilty of of turning us down a dark path here, it'll be me. But <laughs> uh, you know, it, it wasn't all that long ago where people who uh, you know were uh, African American like Hollywood may have had a fire hose turned on them during a protest for equal rights. So it's just turning stereotypes on their ear when here you've got the effeminate black man who's coming to the rescue of the everyday Joe, and now he's turning the fire hose on authority figures. Right. And, and too, Estelle Giddy's character was an older woman who everybody thought should just shut up and you know, that they could trick her easily and everything. And then you have Kim Cattrall's character that is playing as close to against stereotype as a woman, as you can back then. And even, even the horrible girlfriend, (laughs) um, (laughs) she, she drove me nuts. Uh, but even, even her, I mean, she was, uh, you know, a somewhat high-powered, shall we say, probably middle management, upper middle management uh, woman um, in that time. Except that the guy that she kept hanging around with, oh my <laughs> God, he could not get away with those things now. So it was very interesting to see that. But I'll tell you, the one of the things that not only dated this movie, but I hated, the, the one thing about this movie that I hated was looking back at the wardrobes that they put the women in. Oh my God, who dressed them. They, at least Kim Cattrall's character had some, some decent clothes. 
but the girlfriend oh my god i don't even know if any of the women were allowed to wear pants in this film i i don't think so i don't i don't because <laughs> some of the women in the office pool they were wearing those horrible bows that made it look like they were just in a fredericks of hollywood catalog <laughs> but i the girlfriend i mean she wore these things that just hung on her like like somebody just took a roll of fabric and kind of tied it or sewed it up at the end and said here wear this sack now mm-hmm. I, when i was looking over the cast on this mat i don't know if you do the same thing but sometimes i i, I look back on a film that i haven't seen for a while and i mistake certain members of the cast for being maybe a more well-known celebrity <laughs> and so um did you have any uh, any problems recalling who played Roxy and who played Armand? Uh, Armand, yes, I knew I knew him from somewhere, but Roxy, I swore that she she came across so much as um, Elaine from Seinfeld. Exactly, that's my thought too. And when I think of Armand, now I know this is not the actor who played him in this film, mm-hmm. but. When I look back on that, and if I tried to cast people from today's, uh, you know, talent, mm-hmm. I was think Tony Shaloub. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I can see that. And, and for those of you who don't know who Mr. Shaloub was, he was in the USA Network series Monk for a whole long time, and he was often the convenience store clerk in the Men in Black films. I think he was on Wings for a while too, wasn't he? Yes, I think he was a taxi driver in Wigs. Yeah. Oh, boy. So the, the actress that played Roxy, her name is Carol Davis. Now, she was an English-born actress. And uh, we'll get to talk about to how she got this job in a moment here. But she'd been previously a Playboy model. Now, talk about early 80s, you know. She, her, she went by the name of Tamara. She was also a nightclub singer and a lingerie model. She she did what it took to you know pay the bills, and then in more recent years, uh, Carol has been the West Coast director of the Companion Animal Protection Society, which is a national nonprofit organization that investigates puppy mills in pet stores. She leads mm. the anti puppy mill movement in Los Angeles. Mm. That's yeah. very cool. She was also a singer and songwriter, and she composed something with Prince. I don't know what it was, but she did. She also had, I think, one hit single that I also cannot tell you what it was. But so she did. She did write music and and sing, and also her husband is a diabetic, and she got into a lot of trouble recently by being very outspoken about. Uh, uh, being a vegan and how that's the only way to live and how it's the only way to treat diabetes. And she's been heavily criticized for some of the things she said about diabetes because she's, she was almost like a hundred percent wrong. And she, it seemed like she didn't really know what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> well, you know, that happens if you don't think before you speak. I wonder, I wonder if uh, this movie, Mannequin, while you were watching it, did it remind you of another comedy? Did it bring to mind any other movie? Matt might be more qualified to answer with that than me. What do you think, Matt? Um, well, I saw the show notes, so I know. <laughs> but I've never seen that movie. Um, I mean, this is the same trope that has been in, in a lot of films. So, yeah. Well, 
I'll just tell you the the while I was watching it for the first time yesterday, I thought, you know, this is this is a lot like Big with Tom Hanks. Really? Also a fantasy movie and a comedy that took place in a big business world. And you know, this the magic in that movie was a boy suddenly becoming a, a grown-up man. And a lot of the themes were somewhat similar, but it made me think of that. And then I thought, I wonder if Mannequin is a reaction to Big, because Big was a huge hit. And they said, oh, let's do something like Big and make a lot of money like Big did. But I was wrong, because Big came out a year after this movie. Hmm. But hmm. It, uh, it does remind me, if I, if I compared it to another movie, I would say it's sort of a fantasy thing like Big. Hmm. So uh, as we get towards the top of the hour here, I, I want to mention that uh, Carol Davis that played Roxy, I don't have a direct line between how she got the job and who made the film, but there may be a gray area there because the person who directed this film, Mr. Michael Gottlieb, uh, well, just two years prior to Mannequin, he had directed a film for the Playboy Channel. And the Playboy Channel was launched in 1982. And in the beginnings, it was broadcast for only 10 hours each day from 8 a.m. to 6 a.m. Or, I'm sorry, 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. during the first 11 years of existence. And uh, let's see, Mr. Gottlieb later went on to produce Mr. Nanny in 1993 which starred Hulk Hogan and Sherman Helmsley in one of his last film roles from the, you know, uh, Mr. Jefferson, for those of you who are TV fans. He also did in 1995, a King in uh, a kid in King Arthur's court. Apologies. I have a beginning of a cold here. And uh, that also starred Kate Winslet and future 007, Daniel Craig. Hmm. The other thing he did a ton of is he directed a lot of uh, game video video games. Um, he was behind a lot of of their their creation. In fact, he he did way more video games than he ever did movies. Um, by the way, I found out that this movie was originally conceived as a vehicle for. Uh, oh, good lord! His name just escaped me. Michael Moore. Oh no no no! I, I'll give. Uh, I can give you a big hint. There just, are... say, just say his name. What was it? Okay. What was the actor? Dudley Moore. Yes, Dudley Moore. Thank you. And uh, and I guess he just wound up with a conflict in schedule or something, and he didn't make it. But I I thought about that, and I said, you know, that would have been a pretty good movie for Dudley Moore. What don't you think? In in Andrew's role? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it would have changed the dynamic at that point. Yeah, it would have, but... I think it wouldn't have given the movie a different tone. It wouldn't have been a bad movie, but I think it would have given the movie a different direction because he was certainly older than Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. If I were the director, I might be concerned that an older man in that role might have been kind of creepy. Well, it was the 80s, and everybody in the the old men with younger women was very acceptable. I mean, especially if you watch television, most of the leading men, the husbands and wives at the time, the wives were always beautiful and they were Wilma. 
and the guys were Fred. You know what I'm saying here? It, it, well, and it's not outside the realm of things that Dudley Moore has done before. I mean, one right. of the movies we did in the 80s was Mickey and Maud. I was just going to say that one, too. Yeah. Uh, which maybe on a future wish list for this show, because that was another film that I remember watching in my ute with my sisters. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are uh, getting towards the end of the show here. And uh, I was just going to say, since this took place in a department store, there are a handful of other shows out there that also took place in a department store. These were TV programs. But of course, one of the most notable was Are You Being Served? Which, uh, if my computer response here i can tell you how long it ran it ran for 10 series which is what they called them over the uk there there were 70 episodes ran from 72 to 85 now here's a show you may not remember and had a Uh, sequel yes your sequel series yes can you tell matt's a fan (laughs) (laughs) and uh now there was a an 80s uh sort of pbs series it was picked up by nickelodeon but it was canadian originally matt did you ever hear of a tv show called today's special i no, actually i did not oh there there's probably some footage out there that you could look up but it ran from 81 to 87 so coincidentally it ended when mannequin came out but it was a similar dynamic where it was two people in a department store and the mannequin only came to life after hours when a certain person was with them. Now they actually were in a, a reverse roles. The window dresser was a woman in this case, a black woman and the mannequin was a white male. But in that it was kind of hokey because the, the mechanism for the magic was a hat. Now uh, just before we give our final thoughts, on the movie tonight uh let me ask you matt have you seen the sequel that was done about three or four years later it was called mannequin on the move i yes but i'll tell you i don't remember anything about it (laughs) (laughs) you know it was only coincidentally a similar story of some billings for it label it as a sequel it had of course different people in the roles um, I'm trying to remember who played the the main role, but it was a different telling of the story. The the mannequin came from a far off kingdom, kind of like medieval times. And the mechanism that actually caused her to come to life was a cursed necklace that would take it off, allowed her to come to life. Which okay. I, I I had a hard time accepting that because you know in this original with Andrew McCarthy. She would only come to life when she was around, you know, her her true love, apparently. Right. Yeah, I I wasn't Meshach Taylor in that second one, though. I think I, he was he the only one that came over. Yes. Now, they may have used the same Wanamakers for Prince and Company, but I think they used HBO actors at the time for that film. It was it was not awful, but it just wasn't as believable. And uh, the the only thing that I would want fleshed out more from the original mannequin is the explanation of how, uh, you know, she comes to life and how she moves on. Because, you know, what determines if she uh, moves on? You know, what happens? What what determines if she goes back to being a mannequin and doesn't come to life for another decade or two? Mm-hmm. 
right. you know, maybe maybe there should have been something like Cinderella by the stroke of midnight, uh, thirty days for when her first her true love kisses her or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So we are at the top of the hour. So uh, uh, TJ, let me just uh, throw this last little bit of trivia. And it's it's uh, <clears throat> I think the story that goes back the furthest that you could say this is based on is uh, that it is a modern day take on Pygmalion, which was written by uh, an author <clears throat> that we just, we called Ovid and he was <clears throat> uh, lived around the time of Christ and was a poet that was extremely influential uh, well into uh, the Western world and, uh, beyond, but uh, Pygmalion is uh, the uh, story of a sculptor who fell in love with a statue he carved. So that's uh, basically that's basically the story of Mannequin. Mm. Okay, so we're at the top of the hour now, folks, and uh, we normally go through and uh, give our impressions. Now, uh, basically, if you were going off the grid, you were going to your your uh, safe escape there, maybe your cabin in the woods. Would mannequin be something you pack in your overnight bag? Uh, Matt, you could go first. Huh. Um. Sure. Why not? and i think it's an easy yes for me but if i had a choice between this and big trouble and little china i think i'd watch that (laughs) and uh, a toppy there what what are your thoughts what say you sir so i don't really have the nostalgia factor that you guys have that i i really get i mean that there are really bad movies that i love just because there's a they took place in a certain time in my life or whatever uh, but I gotta say, I I watched this three times uh, in the last two days, and at the end of the at the end of the third watch, and I I finally did see the ending. I was pretty satisfied with it, uh, but no, it wouldn't go in the knapsack for the island. <laughs> uh, all right, well, folks, uh, before we go ahead and uh, set things up for the next show, I'd like to. Give a round of applause to Mr. Matt here. Thanks so much for dropping by and being part of our calamity this evening, sir. Absolutely. And if they don't know already, please let the fine folks in the audience there uh, know where else they can find you. Uh, You can find me over at chubsgunwild.com for the podcast. And then if you want to know more about my books or anything, just go over to justkisstheguy.com. Excellent. All right, Toppy, we're going to go ahead and grab one of those coins here. Yeah. Let me see if I can find them. The, uh, the old pockets are, are a little stuffed here, and I may also be waiting for a mouse pointer, so bear with me. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here we go. All right. Lovely capsule. I, will I think that, yeah, and I think GK. that may have landed. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I think that may have landed on my side of the desk here again. Wow, well, uh, you know what kind of luck is that? So, wow. all right, let me let me well, put the capsule back together because I just took it apart. Here, it's yours. Okay, so uh, the next time we get together, which will be in two weeks, and uh, let me go ahead and get that date for you here. Okay, in two weeks, that is going to be Friday, March 
first. So on Friday, March 1st, same time, 9 p.m. Eastern, we are going to be watching the 1989 Fox TV station science fiction series, Alien Nation. We have minorities, we have illegal aliens, all set on the backdrop of a police drama. And uh, so you'll have to join us next time as we talk about a show that only lasted one season, but inspired five television movies through a fan rage or letter writing campaign. And uh, if you pay close attention to the words in that theme song, some say it's just the name of the producer's wife read backwards. Oh, well, we couldn't hear it all that well. But, oh, before we go, the guy we forgot to mention who was in a mannequin that I thought did a marvelous job of being a slimy villain, James Spader. <laughs> True. Yeah. Oh, James Spader had a, a Kennedy connection. He was friends with John John, JFK Jr.'s son. And it turns out he's had dinner at Jackie O's house. Oh, well. right. Stargate. He was yeah, Stargate. He was met as well. And Boston Legal. Hmm. So thank you so much for joining us, folks. And uh, we're going to say our goodnight. Say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight. goodnight. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our program is live every other Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to univospods.net, click the tower for streaming audio, enter Discord for our chat room. You can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Join our Facebook group or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a future show or just want to message us? Email us at matinemanusha at gmail.com. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univazpods.net.